On today's podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, we're actually going to broadcast a meeting that we had online, a Zoom meeting that the New Mexico Wildlife Federation put on. Uh, they invited myself and good buddy BJ Trejo, uh, Ibex extraordinaire hunter, um, to talk about Ibex and the state of Ibex in New Mexico and Ibex hunting. It was really awesome. Normally, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation does a Wildlife Wednesday and they meet at a, a brewery in Albuquerque. But with the crazy times we live in, this was uh, the best we were going to get. And so we took advantage of it. There was quite a few people that joined on the Zoom meeting to ask questions and it was, it was a good time. Uh, again, because it was online, you're going to have to cut us a little slack uh, because of the online gremlins, the drops, the hisses, the pops, all that background noise, all that stuff that happens with these uh, internet Zoom type meetings. But I think there's some really good information and I got a bunch of messages of people asking me, asking me to rebroadcast it. And uh, so that's what I'm doing. You can also find the video on the New Mexico Wildlife Federation YouTube and I think it's in its entirety. So I'm going to kick it off um, and we'll jump right into it. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, it was it was it was a lot of fun. Ibex in New Mexico. So okay. thank everybody for joining us. Really appreciate you coming out to this virtual edition of Wildlife Wednesday. Um, format of the of the event. I want this to be interactive. Uh, we've got two incredible people who are doing I mean we have a bunch of incredible people in joining us but as it relates to this particular uh, topic in uh, hunting ibex with archery equipment of all things um, we've got two people who I'm just super thrilled to have with us this evening with all that said uh, the two individuals that we've got joining us special guests this evening are Trevin Stoltzfus and BJ Trejo and uh, these are two of the I, you know, two very, very accomplished archery Ibex hunters. Those of you that follow my personal Facebook page, you've seen that I've hunted Ibex with a bow and arrow many, many times. Never once have I released an arrow at an Ibex. So I have uh, a special level of admiration for the accomplishments that these two gentlemen have um, been able to succeed in one of the most treacherous environments. And we'll talk a lot more about that as the, as the evening progresses. I think what we're going to do, um, I'd like to give both BJ and Trevin, starting with BJ, an opportunity to um, introduce themselves, say just a few words about themselves and, and why they're doing this, why they've agreed to participate, and provide us with a few words of wisdom. So first we'll go with BJ, then Trevin will follow BJ, and then Trevin's going to show us a very short clip <clears> of the <throat> film that's just terrific, and then we'll get into the question and answer session. So uh, with that said, BJ, it's all yours. <laughs> I don't know about words of wisdom, man, but here we go. All right, so uh, yeah, BJ Trejo. Um, I live here in Dimming, New Mexico. Uh, my backyard is the Florida Mountains, which is, I probably spent an unhealthy amount of time up there, but um, I'm an educator by trade um, and spend every moment I can talking about conservation hunting, taking people out, you know, trying to do the right thing. Um, and I'm just doing this. I fully support what you guys are doing in the New Mexico Wildlife Federation and just like-minded people, man. Let's get this on, man. Trevin. Well, um, where do I start? I was born at an early age. Um, 
insert laughter there. Uh, I was born in Las Cruces, New Mexico, uh, born and raised there. My family still lives there. My uh, little sister and her brother uh, live in Deming. So um, I still call Southern New Mexico my home, even though I've been in Colorado for almost 20 years. And um, I'm a filmmaker with a hunting addiction. I, I think it's a, good, it's a good way to put it. Um, I love telling stories. And, and when I uh, was able to draw um, what uh, has been known as, or circles that, that I had heard about the rock, the Florida mountains, uh, and draw the Ibex tag in 2014, I got to spend 15 uh, amazingly painful days um, on that rock hunting, bow hunting Ibex and never fired a shot. And I, I was blessed enough to to get to draw it again in 2016 where I was successful. Um, BJ was actually um, with me the last day. Um, so I, I don't put myself in the same category of Ibex hunter as BJ, but um, I have been one of the fortunate few that, that was lucky to uh, uh, bless enough to, to, to harvest an, uh, a, a young Billy uh, and capture it on, on film. Um, and I spent another 15 days in 2016 doing that. And I actually shot my Ibex with 30 minutes of light the last day. So I don't know how you can write a script any better than that. Um, and uh, I also just happened to kill my first quail when I was 12 at the base of the Florida. So to me, that is a definitely uh, the Florida mountains are near and dear to my heart. So uh, yeah, uh, to me that uh, I think if, if even if that short film uh, gets one person interested uh, in, in what how well the ibex have done in new mexico i think it's a i think it's a success story for sure and bj you can probably speak more to this about how those animals coming from where they came from have adapted to that ecosystem there on the on on the florida mountains no without a doubt i mean there's no there's not a doubt that they are comfortable in their habitat i mean they're i've never been to their native place of course but I did hunt with a gentleman that that his father was actually from Iran and hunted ibex in Iran as a kid and he actually came here to the to the Florida mountains and his his son um he killed a ibex his name's Bob um and it, it was just neat to see because you know from his homeland to come to here where they're here and, and he said yeah they've done phenomenal and it, it's actually very similar to to where they they you know their their native land I think for me, uh, you know, as, as people ask me all the time about Ibex hunting and, and I'm in pretty decent shape. I stay in pretty decent shape. Um, I, uh, I, I, I can't stress how tough that mountain is. Um, and I don't know if it has to do with uh, the age of the rock formation, the fact that everything either pokes, sticks, bites you, uh, you know, whatever. I, it seems like on, on the Florida mountains, when you take a step forward, you also slide back too. you know, um, there was plenty of times when we wasn't seeing animals, uh, and BJ, you, you, you know, this to be true. Uh, anybody who's set up a, a spotting scope in hardly any time at all, if you're willing to, you know, just spend a little time, you're going to find Ibex, but mm -hmm. getting from there, from where you're at, especially with the bow, to where those ibex are, 
Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible because they're not like mule deer. And I try and explain this to people. Ibex can be patterned, but they're not like a mule deer that, okay, you watch them, they bed down. Okay. You're all right. Great. We're going to make our move on this bedded mule deer. You know, that, that buck's probably going to be there. If you, if you let him get into his second day bed, he's probably going to be there through the afternoon. Ibex aren't that way. I mean, we watched, we watched a herd of 20. I think a rabbit jumped up and they were, two ridges over i mean I well think and this... i don't i don't even i don't even think it takes a rabbit i think it just <laughs> takes them to just say like you know i think i wanted to go from you know capitol dome to south peak right now right. let's go and they right. just take off and that's you're exactly right they're they're not and there's always one watching you that's yeah. why i'll never spot a bedded bedded group of ibex never will i even get out of the get out of my seat because you're not going to get on them if right. they're bedded down not going to happen all right yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I would agree with that. The the first uh, the first hunt, um, I think I was over eager. Maybe um, my mind overrode my common sense, and we actually packed into some areas that we could camp up on top. And I, my idea on that was I'm going to be up there already. So then, as I need to move around, um, I'm going to already be half of that battle of getting up the hill or getting up the mountain. Um, through the cliffs and all that stuff, that'll be done because I'm going to be already be there. Um, the mistake I made in 2014 was when I did that, I took my spotters out of the mix. I completely made them because what I do is I'd get up there and then I'd see some really good billies in a place that they couldn't see. And so being able to have that help, like BJ, BJ was literally on the glass and he was signaling me in of where to move as the ibex were moving. So, so what we had, were trying to do when I finally killed my 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 goat in 2016 was I was trying to get up on what what uh, BJ you guys referred to as the as an eyebrow of a cliff, kind of mm-hmm. looks like an eyebrow. And these goats are going up. Well, I think I don't know. Didn't I go up there up and back like two or three times because they kept changing direction? Yeah, and, they were just moving around, yeah. And and I remember one time I, I think I told you, I said, dude, I don't know if I can make it. And you said, You gotta make it, man. You got an hour of daylight left. You gotta make it. And I just had to kind of dig deep. And I was really fortunate on that hunt, not only to have BJ kind of running running the show on the on the on the valley floor, if you want to call it that, or the desert floor, but I had a cameraman with me that was young, uh, Tanner Vernon. And um uh, you know, whether it's a cameraman or just your hunting partner, he, he really in that moment picked me up and really encouraged me. And man, it's, I, I don't know, has anybody have seen Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? You know, he wakes up every morning. It's the same day for 15 days in a row. That's what I felt like every morning I'd get up and I, my attitude was good though. And I just would, you know, I'd say, Hey, we're going to do the same thing again. And, um, and my feet were, were, were blistered and sore and, and, uh, you know, uh, but you just kept, you just kept at it. You just kept at it. So, so I don't know. Um, Trevin and BJ, I'm going to interrupt just for a second. Two yeah. things. One, I want to remind all the participants again, if they want to comment or, or ask questions, just type in the chat box. I'm monitoring that. So this is designed to be an interactive meeting, but um, I want to, I just want to compare a little bit of my experience hunting Ibex to yours. And I was an amateur. I was young. It was over 10 years ago when it went to a draw hunt and 
I haven't had the opportunity to hunt them since then. But I never did. I never took a team approach to it. Uh, it was my dad and I. We hunt together. We were together. It's such a dangerous mountain that I think it's important sometimes if you're going up and down that mountain to be with somebody because obviously, and you guys can talk more about this, but you can roll an ankle or get yourself in a pickle in a real hurry. But we never had a group spotting from, from the base of the mountain or uh, some other vantage point to guide us. But the, the question I want to ask is, in some states, that's not legal. In some states, radio communication from a hunter to other people who are helping the hunting party is not a legal means of take. And um, in New Mexico, obviously it is. And, and it seems to be from my observations and stories I've heard from a lot of people that that's a real critical component to hunting Ibex in the Floridas. And I'm just curious if either of you would like to address that and talk about the, the fair chase aspect of using a team approach to chasing this particular species. Mm. So on, on my end, <clears throat> I've seen both sides of it. Um, I saw it work magically with Trevin. Um, I've seen it work, you know, I've seen it. There's been close calls with it, but on my end, I have had both sides of it. Um, my dad's, you know, he's hunted with me and, and he was instrumental in, in a lot of times getting me close. Um, but the, the, the Ibex that I've actually taken, all of them were solo. Um, I, I guess just because I felt I was quieter, I was more stealthy, but I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Trevin, you, you always, I mean, well, Trevin's deal is a little different. He's got a, he's making film and he's doing yeah. stuff. Yeah. My, my, I, I, it is, it is easier and it is nice to know. I know when, when I was hunting with somebody just to say, Hey, that goat is still there. Right, and that's, right. a, that's, I don't know how many times I had stalked seven, eight hours on, on stuff, get there knowing that animal was going to be there and he, they're gone. And they were yeah. probably gone within 30 minutes as I left the truck. Right. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, I hunt a lot of States and, um, New Mexico, it is legal. Um, and, some states it's not so we actually have a flagging system that you can use that works i don't think it works as well because again there's situations where you need to say little things that can be said quickly um via radio uh or text or you know how whatever the electronic communication you're doing um that you can't do with the flag but it is possible because i've actually helped some guys with some sheep hunts where it was not legal for electronic communications and we were able to flag them in but bj hit the nail on the head there's something about ibex even more so than like a bedded mule deer um like i said uh, i i don't even stop mule deer till they've gotten their second bed because their first bed they're going to be there for an hour or so until the till the sun changes and gets high in the sky then they're going to find their second bed and then that's when you're going to have that length of time well that doesn't apply with ibex so like BJ says, if it wasn't for that, there had been a lot of days wasted getting into position and the goats aren't even there. And the other thing is getting back to what I said first about the ability to move. I might need to move just 70 yards and the goats, they're not getting up or moving because of me. But if I, if I knew to move 70 yards and sit in a saddle or, uh, you know, where they're coming up, just like when I killed mine, BJ told me, you need to get out to that point. And when I got out to that point, my cameraman was right over my shoulder. The goats 
came up. And the only reason I got a shot was because there was four goats kind of in a, you, you, if you've seen Ibex move through the mountains, they kind of line out, especially in, in, the, in the cliffs. They'll line out. One will go and then the other will come behind. And, and these four came to a point and they looked at each other like, who's going to go first? Well, by then I was at full draw and I was able to find the one that gave me the cleanest shot and, and take it. And, and it worked out. Um, but I know other guys, um, Sean Greathouse, a good friend of mine, um, was with Derek Harris, uh, who has hunted, he's guided on that mountain quite a bit. And I don't know how many, BJ, I don't know how many goats freaking Derek has guided to people to, but quite a few. But mm -hmm. with Sean, they were in a position where they just moved around and here come the goats. The goats had no idea they were there. It was just more of an intercept or, an, or almost an ambush type setting where they were set up. The goats came in, moved completely naturally, and then they were able to, to take a shot. So, so, you know, I think it is important that you understand the legality in the states. But in this situation, if you can get a buddy, and it, again, this is hard. It's a, you know, 15-day season or whatever. It's hard to have that much time off, let alone have your buddy that have that much time off. But if you can do it, you can, you can have some, you know, the, some people on the ground. Um, and, and there was even guys I ran into, and this is one of the things I love about that hunt. Everybody I ran into on the mountain, it wasn't like I was out hunting uh, elk in Colorado on public land where you're like not giving away anything. I mean, there was times I'd, I'd run into people and we'd hunt all day together. I'd help them. I'd talk them on, in on goats, or I'd position them in. Uh, the other thing that I tried, which I didn't ever kill a goat, but I, I did get away with some pretty amazing movement, was a, a decoy. I had Montana decoy make me an Ibex decoy. And there was times I didn't have any cover, and I popped that up. And, of course, again, I always got a cameraman or two with me. And we'd hide behind that thing and move across open country. And it bought us some time. So I think there's some different strategies you can use. But like BJ says, I mean, you killed all those goats that you killed by yourself on the ground. Yeah. So. They, and they that was coming from the and – I, and I have a whole different deal, too. But, again, like I mentioned, I, I lived here. I spent a tremendous amount of time – there's not many ibis that I don't know where they are, you know, especially during hunting season. I know those animals. I know where they're going to go. I generally know their habits. I mean, of course, they do change during hunting season when Trevin's out there chasing them around. But, um, yeah, I mean, it just – I don't know. I, I, there's a lot, there's a lot of, of pregame stuff put into it before you just put your boots on the ground. And BJ, would you say that uh, – I, I want to get your take on the October hunt. It, it, talking bow hunting now, yep. the October bow hunt versus the January bow hunt. So, um, I'm being careful here because I don't want people putting in for the same hunt I'm putting in for. You see? Well, okay. Then let me no, let me let me no, give you I'm my. Not, I'll give you my I'll take. I'll, I'll give you okay. I'll give Go you my take, now. and you and you either agree or disagree. In my opinion, there's some advantages to October and some advantages to January. And yeah. the advantage to October is you're hunting goats that aren't, haven't been pressured for as long. Um, uh, the weather, I don't consider the weather, since I've been in Colorado, I don't consider the weather in New Mexico a factor because what I used to consider cold, I consider nice now um, because I've been hunting up here so long. Um, but the snakes, um, 
are much worse in October. So if you're, if you're afraid to have a problem with snakes, just know that. I did in January on both my hunts run into rattlesnakes, but they were so sluggish it was not even a, a factor. I didn't wear any shafts or, or snake boots or anything like that, gaiters, anything like that um, in January. Um, but I do think that uh, in October, uh, if you don't mind the snakes, I think that sometimes the 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 goats can be a little less. There are they in bigger groups in October? Would you say, BJ? No, I, I'm going to say they're about the same. Okay, I've seen groups of I mean a hundred during October and during during um, January. It doesn't matter. And uh, you're right, Trevin. And and I'm just kind of joshing there, you know, saying giving away secrets. If they want to know. Uh, statistics i can talk to brandon he's on here he knows everything about that but um october in my opinion is easier and and like i said in, the, in my intro there i am a an educator by trade so i would you know i can get off at three o'clock and i can come hunt so that was the big factor for me the length of the days so i can hunt till you know eight eight o'clock eight thirty right. night um and two of the goats i killed were like that i killed them you know in the evening after 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 school um they are a little bit less weary, I guess, but not much because I think just by nature they are, it's, you know, they're just watching. They just, they know, everything that's going on, of course, everything's trying to kill them, I guess, up there. Um, the snakes, in my opinion, are not a factor at all. If you want to get snake bit, I think you can get snake bit very easily. Um, I live here. I, I'm not, how do I want to say that? Um, I know where not to go. I'm not going to walk to the bottom of the arroyos. I'm not going to stay on the, on the shady side of the bushes because I know that's where the snakes live. Um, I respect a snake. If, you know, they, they buzz. They, they tell you they're there, and I just walk the other way. You know, thank you for letting me know, and I just get out of the way, you know. So um, it is a lot hotter during that time of the year. I will tell you that. But, again, I live here. We're, we're in New Mexico. You just have to expect that. That's just part of the gig. So January can be pretty tough. We can get snow. But, again, like Trevin said, it's it's nothing. It's if we get six inches of snow, you know, school closes. So it's not a big deal. Right. Right. I so think, okay. I think, go, go ahead, Trevor. I didn't mean to. I think one of the things that uh, was so unique to me on my first hunt was that Ibex in some ways are a lot like turkeys in the fact that they roost. Um, Ibex, you know, are going to bed on those domes. They're going to bed because what's their number one predator? It isn't us. It's mountain lions. Right. And so they're going to bed on the top of those domes. And I know a lot of guys have had really good success um, uh, positioning themselves in the early morning and late evenings in saddles and draws and stuff like that that actually funnel to some of these big domes. You know, you got the south side where you've got, you know, uh, three or four at the end of the of the ridges, you got these big domes, and then capital dome. I mean, you got all these different domes. The difference is, turkeys sometimes will roost in the same tree. These dang ibex, they might roost, or they might go to sleep somewhere. But but the good thing is, if you have an idea and ibex are in an area, it's not a bad tactic to go. Okay, I'm going to move to a position and try and intercept them, and and by put your putting yourself in a position to to ambush them as they're going up to those big domes. So if you're uh, prepared to stay the night up there. Yeah. yeah. Or be able to walk out at night, because that's a dangerous gig there too. Yeah. You can die real quick on this mountain. Yeah. That's so coming off of this thing at night is absolutely 
you better be prepared to do your homework because it is not a good situation. And you don't want to put, you know, other people's lives at risk getting your rear end off the mountain. Yeah. Great point, guys. Um, we've got a lot of questions in the chat okay. box. Uh, one that, that we were just talking about is snakes. And um, it was Gunner's iPad who asked what kind of snakes. And, and I'll just uh, give my personal testimonial and then let you guys answer the question. But the I once came face-to-face -face with the Mojave rattlesnake on that mountain. That's the only Mojave rattlesnake I've ever seen in my life. And, and it was it was a pretty scary experience. I'm generally, as a lifelong New Mexico, I spent a lot of time with rattlesnakes. So... Um, I don't normally get super scared, but this was one where I was kind of inching along a, a face of a cliff and there was a little cave, if you will, and my face came right in front of that cave and there's a coiled up Mojave rattlesnake about 12 inches from my face and that was a little bit scary. Um, but anyway, any any other uh, um, snakes that, that you guys have encountered on that mountain? Just, you know, the most common is going to be your diamondback rattlesnake, You're, you know, the Coontail, Diamondback, Western Diamondback, whatever you want to call them. Those are going to be your most predominant, you know, your most predominant snakes on that mountain. Um, and they'll range from, I don't know, I've seen them six inches all the way to, all the way to eight feet. You know, they're, they're just various, varying size. And, but that's what you're mostly going to see in those Mojaves. I've seen just a couple of those on that mountain. Yeah, I... I what did you run into, Chuck? I, you know, I, it, I was... I'm not a snake connoisseur. And when they have that little rattle on the backside, I don't usually spend enough time to identify what they are. I just know that's something I don't want to get, get close to. But I do. I actually have some pictures of a snake. I was coming up over on some ibex that were below me, and I kind of belly crawled my way out and inched over to look. And I was sitting there watching, sitting there watching, and my cameraman said, don't move. There's a snake right next to you. And I looked to my left and probably – 18 inches from me was probably about an eight inch rattler baby rattler i assume um and uh and he was so cold he was laying on the rock right kind of down off of where i was on and all he was doing was sunning himself and uh honestly he was so still i thought he was dead uh, i poked him with an arrow and he was not dead um but you know and then other than that i saw I saw some, uh, you know, just I'd be like you said, when you going up and you'd look down in a cave and you'd see one coiled and I just would keep going. I, I never felt like it was an issue. Uh, I'm not deaf. I'm not one of them guys that that uh, that's real scared of snakes. I mean, if there was a bunch of uh, big old spiders up there, I might it might be a different story. Spiders freak me out. I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty good with snakes. Um, so, you know, I mean that, but that's my, that's the interaction I had with rattlesnakes when I was up on the mountain. And, you know, I, I hear stories of people talking that they've seen 30, 40 rattlesnakes a day. I, I feel that that's very exaggerated. Uh, in my opinion, I, I might see three or four a season. Yeah. And I guess that's just because I'm not looking for them either. Right. And, and I, and I, I would say probably in both my trips, I probably saw three or four rattlesnakes the whole 15 yeah. days I was up there and I was up there the entire time. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, um, real quick, I've, I've got some questions in the chat box. I've unmuted everybody that's asking a question or given them the opportunity. I've, I've given them the opportunity to unmute themselves. So if people want to ask the question themselves, they certainly can. 
Um, but I've got a question here from Josh Urban, and uh, I know I just happen to know that Josh has an Ibex tag uh-huh. in his pocket right now at the moment. And what Josh is asking is, how far is a typical shot on an Ibex? Then he goes on to ask, BJ and Trevin, how close was your closest shot? Well, um, I can tell you, the first. I saw Trevin. Yeah, the first. No, yeah, tri- go for it. The first trip. Um, I almost, I came to full draw. Um, well, actually, I was about to draw. And um, I was actually above the goats. They were down below. We had worked off to a cliff face, and they were at the very base. And um, my range, my compensating range finder, which is pretty close. It's, it's not exact, but it's pretty close, uh, said to shoot them for 32 yards. And then after, uh, when I was just about to draw, my cameraman tried to lean out a little bit more and clanked the rock with his tripod. A different cameraman the second time, but, um, and of course the goats were gone that quick. And then I, I clicked my uh, rangefinder off the angle compensation and they were 92. So that's how steep of a slope I was shooting down. One thing I would tell people, uh, this is a little side note, but if you have a tag in your pocket and you're going to go hunt Ibex is I want you to go and I want you to understand what third axis on your side is. Okay. People don't realize this. You have your first axis, which is just how level your pin is. Then you have your second axis, which is, you know, this way. Then you have your third axis, which is actually this way. Okay. Most sites nowadays, like a spot hog or Montana Black Gold or some of these other sites, have a third axis adjustment. You need to go to Hamsky Archery's website. They explain third axis. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to sell you a product. What I'm trying to, to help you understand is why it's important. When you're on extreme, level, uh, extreme angles that are more than 45 degrees, okay, third axis becomes an issue. And you can be off, we were doing some testing where you're off, you can be off six inches at, at 60 yards. So that's either making a very poor shot on an Ibex or completely missing, even if everything else is right. So that's very important. Um, the other thing I would tell you is, is that you, uh, and the, you need to set your third access not static. That's the other thing. You'll see a lot of bow shops will take it and they'll turn it at a 45 degree and they'll set the third axis. But I did a test before my Ibex hunt. I put a laser on my arrow and I put a laser on my stabilizer and I pointed it at the wall. And as I drew, those lasers moved because your um, riser on your bow, and I don't care what bow you shoot, is going to have movement because it's designed to be that way. There's going to be tweak. So the only way to perfectly set your third axis is at full draw. Go to the Hamsky Archery website. They have some great videos on that. And they actually have a little leveling tool that, that you can use at your house. You don't need to go to a bow shop to set your third axis. But that's very important. So as a long-winded answer to tell you that I'm, I almost got a shot the first uh, first hunt that would have been shoot it for 30, 35 yards when it was actually 92. Um, that's a little bit far. I mean, uh, that, that's a far shot. There's a lot that can happen in that distance. Um, now I was shooting, um, comfortably out to, 
um, a little a little ways. I'm not going to say what I was shooting comfortably out to, but I did um, have a shot that I missed the second hunt that was seven a little over 70 yards, and the goat just wasn't there. Um, literally was not there when the arrow hit. Um, I'm thankful for that because I, I, I would have felt bad about wounding. And, but that goes back to the fact that the Ibex, um, these Ibex don't necessarily just stand. And, you know, he didn't even know I was there. It wasn't like I spooked or whatever. He just moved. He, he was just moving. I ended up killing my, my goat at 21 yards. Good deal. That was good information there, Kevin. Nolan, thank you for clearing some stuff up. Yeah, um, yeah to, 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 to a preface of it is I am comfortable shooting at a distance, but that doesn't mean I'm going to shoot an animal that far, right? I mean, I, I, I competitively shoot. I'm a competitive archer. I shoot very comfortably out very far, but I will never do that. And that's just for me to, you know, fine tune stuff to me. Um, and like he said, things change and the wind up there always blows. There's never a calm day up there. There's Canyon wind. There's, it's just always windy. So I have shot, um, I think the, the closest I shot was, I believe he was 68 yards, which is the first goat I ever killed. And that goat was very rare. It was actually straight across from me. Um, I had, like he said, I, I pulled up on Ibex and ranged him at, you know, shoot for, you know, 35 yards. And then you get the line of sight and it's like over a hundred yards. So you, you, you have to be very smart about that because you'll get in the heat of the moment. You'll, you'll, you'll pull up, throw the rangefinder on there and, Oh, he's 27 yards. And then you shoot an arrow never gets there, you know, and it's, or, you know, and heaven forbid you wound something. Cause that's something you got to live with. Um, just, I, I don't know. Closest shot, I, I I would be very comfortable shooting at 50, 60 yards if somebody's – I would say that's going to be about the average uh, ethical shot up on the mountain if I'm trying to preach to somebody about it. so. Well, and, and I'll even take that a step further. What I would do if I were you, and this is what I did, is you need to have different limits for different conditions. Um, yeah. And what I mean by that is here I am at my house. I have a range. I'm standing up. I don't shoot when it's super windy, right? And I stand back and I'm dropping pretty good group at 100 yards. Is that my ethical range? Heck no, that's not my ethical range. So what I have to do is put myself in those hunting conditions to understand what my ethical range is, i.e. I got a 20 mile per hour crosswind. All of a sudden my ethical range for that those conditions oh but wait a minute now i'm on my knees i'm not standing on flat ground or maybe i'm you know unbalanced when i practice that i find out my ethical range for that drops to about 40 right yeah. and if you're not honest with yourself you are going to you're good when you release an arrow and you hope it hits the target yeah, that's probably not the best thing to do. So before you get on that mountain, understand under certain conditions, that's going to hamper your ethical range. I'm not telling anybody how far they can shoot because that's not my job. I'm not the ethics police. My job is to say in with me and the way I shoot under certain conditions, I can shoot 70 yards. The next day, conditions change. All of a sudden, 35 is my max. I have to be willing to put those parameters on myself or you're just, you're just flinging arrows and praying. 
Same thing with the rifle. I mean, if you're if you're hunting ibex with a rifle and you're out there playing plunking steel at a thousand yards, that's great. But what about if you had to huff up and now you're out of breath and you're coming over and you're not getting a steady shot and you're offhand shooting? What's your ethical yards? It ain't 600. You know, it's not going to be. So you have to make those decisions before you step foot on the rock. And you need to practice those conditions as well, too. And, and, and I see people, you know, they'll, they'll talk to me and, they'll, you know, I get Instagram, Facebook, you know, uh, questions. Hey, what do I do? I've been shooting off my roof. I've been shooting off my balcony. I'm like, that ain't going to cut it, Jack. You had better make a trip somewhere where there's some mountains and some, you know, very steep shots. It's not going to, you know, shooting out of it like a tree stand and shooting out of here is not the same. And you need, you know, people, it'll be blowing here 60, 70 miles an hour. 30 miles an hour and nobody wants to go out and shoot, but that's the time that you need to go shoot because those are reality. And, and this mm-hmm. is for, for a lot of you folks, if, or, you know, people out of state, that's, it's a lot of money to come down here and hunt to just, you know, to sit inside and wait for a calm day to go practice, you know? Right. Yeah. And or I, when I, it's hot or when it's running and I know I see you do a lot of it and you know, I do a lot of it, you know, running and then shooting, yeah. you know, get that heart rate up and then shoot got the bow yeah. because and, that's reality. And, and the fact of the matter is, I mean, you sh- those calm days are the days you make sure your bow's dialed. Everything's yep. right. Um, your broadheads are flying. And that's the other thing. Uh, so I think I saw something on the chat about, uh, you know, what poundage, do, would you shoot the same poundage for Ibex as you would elk? I would say this. If, you, if you're shooting deer, whatever you would shoot deer with, I would confidently shoot at an Ibex, an antelope, a deer, that sized animal. I would feel confident with that. The bottom line is you need to shoot what you're most accurate with. Um, I just drew a Colorado moose tag. So yay me, right? 21 years um, and finally get to go moose hunting in the lower 48. Um, I'm going to shoot something that I've never shot at anything else. Um, It's going to affect my distance, my range, all of that stuff. Um, But if I'm going deer hunting, I already know the setup I'm I'm going to shoot because I'm very accurate at that. I've shot shot a similar setup for years. Um, so so if that I hope that answers your question. I wouldn't I don't think you need that the kind of of kinetic energy you would with an elk or a moose or something like that for ibex. I would be more concerned think about deer antelope type style or, or type body size. Wouldn't you agree with that, BJ? Yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's any. I think it's I can't, I don't know that anybody has like a rifle, right? So I have a a small game rifle and a rifle, a big game rifle or whatever, right? You know, but I, I, the average person's got one, one bow and that's what they get confident with. Um, And all bows nowadays, you see now you see, oh, I got to shoot 80 pounds. I got to shoot this and that. You don't have to anymore. And, and a guy told me one time that if you cannot pull your bow back sitting down flat on your butt, you're pulling way too much poundage, right? Because you can kill, I mean, these bows now at 50 pounds are doing things that 10 years ago, you had to shoot 80 pounds with an underspined arrow to, to shoot, you know? So broadheads are better, arrows are better. You know, you've got these micro diameter arrows. They're just ridiculous. I would shoot what you're comfortable with shooting and go with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I know Andy had his hand up. Um, I don't know if Andy's got a question. Uh, let me, I'm going to have to unmute him, I think. So give me just one second to do that. Uh, Aaron and Joshua, I think also. Have okay. If they want to chime in while I unmute Andy here. Yeah, that helps out a lot, guys. Thanks for answering those questions for me. I appreciate it. 
You got it. Yeah, yeah. when I'm at work pretending to be a fireman, we uh, <laughs> we get out there and shoot quite a bit. So we've been shooting out 100 yards and kind of just shooting in the wind, getting more confident, but just kind of wanted to see what what more I should be doing. But thank you for that. It helped out. Well, what I, more you should be doing is getting in the 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 best shape that you've ever been in your life. You better be in it. Um, that's going to be the biggest thing that's going to hinder you is physical physical shape. I, I joke a lot of times by you know I say oh, I'm lucky. Oh, it's no big deal. Huh? But I guess I I work out. I live in a CrossFit gym. I run. I shoot every day. You, you just you put in the work. It is it is a tremendous amount of work to be able to be successful in that mountain. I I I'm gonna Josh. Uh, is this Josh? Or the, was that who asked the question? Yes, it was. Okay. Hey Josh, what I would do is um, sandbags. I would. I'm gonna just throw this out there. Um, I agree with BJ. CrossFit is definitely something that's gonna give you that all around. Um, but in a situation, what I want you to incorporate is um, burpees are great. Um, moving uh, a, a heavy thing from one point to another, get your heart rate into that mid zone and then stop and take one shot. Yep. Okay. Now what I'm going to tell you to do is take a seven inch circle with maybe a dot in the middle. Okay. That's going to be an average kill zone. It's actually a little small, but it's going to give us a good average. If you look at, at, at an Ibex's, uh, kill zone and then you take out the shoulder and you take out some of the areas you don't want to be it's going to end up seven inch circle so you need to know under those heart uh breathing you know your heart rate conditions where it's elevated where does that put your accuracy and you can do that really simply by uh doing some crossfit exercises box jumps um burpee um sandbag get ups anything like that, that you know stuff around the house but get that heart rate up and then, um, and then shoot. Uh, I'm not so concerned with you going and walking a thousand miles and then shooting. I'd rather you get that initial spike that's going to simulate that adrenaline dump you're going to get when you're in a hunting situation, and the actual out of breathness. Is that a word? Out of breathness. I just sure. Um, the out. Of, I'm from I'm from Cruces. Sorry, Las Cruces. High 89. Um, I I. Uh, but that's going to simulate that, and then it's going to tell you where you're at physically in order to say, okay, my, my ethical range is, you know, I, I'm still banging them at 60. Of course, on top of that, you're going to have environment, uh, animal conditions, all of those things you need to take into, into account too. But, but hunting is hunting. Uh, BJ told me one thing one time. He said, sometimes you just got to get aggressive. You just got to yeah. go. You can't sit there and wait for the first, the perfect opportunity because it will never present itself. You have to put it in your hands, do the preparation beforehand, and then when that moment of truth comes, you have to make it happen. Hey, uh, BJ, can you hear me? Gotcha. Hey, we haven't met yet, but this is Zach. I'm here with uh, your cousin Aaron, and I uh, just wanted to say hello and uh, really – enjoyed the podcast um i have one quick question for you so we were in germany for about four years and i didn't have my bow over there uh would you recommend that i get it restrung before i shoot it um i would just recommend taking it to an archer shop maybe and have them look at it uh strings nowadays you know the, the material is 
pretty good. You know, it'll last as long as it's been waxed. And But strings are pretty cheap insurance. <laughs> you know, yeah. you blow a string okay. up, it can injure you or injure, you know, you know, it can do a lot of damage. So, yeah, 100 bucks is pretty cheap when you look at it in retrospect. All right, well, appreciate or, or, or bring it. Or bring it down here and I'll uh, help you with it, okay? All right, will do. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, nice seeing you guys. Yeah, see ya. Hey guys, a uh, couple quick things. One, I've got everybody currently unmuted or, or at least with the ability to unmute themselves. I was having some trouble unmuting individuals, so I've unmuted everybody. So if everyone would just uh, take it upon themselves to mute their own <laughs> microphone if they're not speaking, that would be super helpful. And I'll save I was reading Katie's comment. I'm sorry. How many arrows <laughs> should I take? <laughs> um, yeah, Katie, Katie's Katie, teaching me how to do this. Um, Katie, you need to just take, you just need to pack as many as you can pack in your pack. I've heard about your shooting. <laughs> so, Andy, um, Andy had a, I think Andy had a question. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Andy. You're going to have you're, to unmute. You're, you're, you're muted. You're muted. You're going to need to unmute yourself. Hit the hit, hit, hit your screen, and then there should be an unmute button. Let me see if I can unmute you. Hold on. I did. You're unmuted. No. Hey man, I got a question. Okay, go ahead. So, question that I had is, I've been on. Uh, well, I've been up there before, but for archery, would it be the best? Uh, spot and stock or do you think it's the best like ambush style or wow that's a that's a that's the million dollar question because here's here's why i say it's a million dollar question and bj you take it from here i have sat and thought you know what i need to go park my butt in that saddle right there and i need to sit all day okay and then i didn't have the patience to do it okay and I sat and watched freaking go talk right by there. Another guy, I don't know uh, if anyone knows Jeremy Eastman. Jeremy, I think Jeremy was one of the guys that was, uh, maybe it was Jeremy, maybe it was somebody else. Anyway, they committed to set in this saddle. They sat there and they got three. It wasn't Jeremy because Jeremy killed his, I think, on the first shot. But this guy sat on a saddle leading between a dome and some other cliffs that the goats were hanging out in. He sat there for a week. He would he'd walk up there in the dark and walk out in the dark. And he knew his path perfect. And I think he had three shots. Yeah. So, so hey, if, you're, if you've got that mentality and that self-control, I say more power to you. You're probably going to be – you're probably going to have more opportunities, especially hunting a season where there's other people pushing goats around. But man, I can't. It's hard for me to do. I don't know, BJ. Can you? Could you sit there for a freaking whole day? So I did it one time, and I'm kind of a. I I, I did it one day. Um, I sat kind of low on a ridge. Um, I because I've been watching these goats, and there was people hunting this particular little ridge. They were just chasing these goats around. I I was like, you know what? I'm gonna just sit there one day, right? Um, sat there for. I don't know, three, four hours till the sun started coming up. I was kind of laying the, you know, I was kind of up under a little rock, some rocks there. Uh, sat there till the sun started hitting me and I was like, you know what, I can't. So I hiked up a little bit further, got up in these other cliffs. Not 30 minutes later, Ibex ran around the corner 
and stood on top of the rock that I was laying under. So it happens. I don't yeah. have the patience. I don't have what it takes to do it. Um, I'm very, I, I, I very picky at the Ibex that I, that I pursue. Um, I mentioned earlier, I will never chase an Ibex that is bedded because they're watching you already. You think you have them outsmarted. You don't. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to waste my time. Oh, my phone's falling. I'm not going to waste my time hiking up that mountain. Um, you know, and, and, Sorry, guys, I'm losing my deal here. I'm not going to waste my time, right? So there's always somebody wa- – there's always a goat watching you. So I will pick and choose. I, I hunt – I love to hunt the evenings because these goats are moving. In the mornings, I love to hunt because the goats are moving. If they're moving, they're not per- always watching you. But if they are if, – if you know, if they're bedded up, there's always a sentry looking at you. Um, I think if you really sat there, you could. I've heard of people getting on them like that. I'm not one to do that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not either. I don't have one after that to another. Yeah. So so uh, the one more question. Um, uh, actually, I forgot. I forgot what the question was. I'll ask in a while. What one thing I'm going to say um, is that any goat with a bow is a good goat. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I'll be honest. Um, my first trip, um, I think I was a little. Uh, it was a humbling experience. Um, I knew I had a, a, a handicap with, uh, you know, hauling all the cameramen around the mountains. And uh, the problem was the fatigue. We ended up switching cameraman every, every two days so that they, those guys could rest. So I had to really be in good shape. But my second hunt, I was ready. If a nanny would have given me an opportunity, um, I would have shot a nanny. And, you know, the Billy I shot was a young Billy and I was, I'll be honest, I was so happy. I, I so, you know, I, um, I'm, if someone were to ask me, what do I hold out for with a bow? I tell you nothing, anything that gives you an opportunity, I would shoot it. Yeah. Well, what is the percentage? It's a 2% success rate, right? Or there I think it's, I think it's a little higher now. I think it's pushing three. Um, I screwed that one up, didn't I? Well, but I think it's uh, October's like almost four, and then January's a little lower. And so I think it ended up coming out with uh, Ibex with a bow. Nanny or Billy, I think this success ratio is right around 3%. So what you're dealing with is, and I might be wrong, I might be going out on a limb here, but um, I I, I think that it's the hardest, it's the lowest success ratio of any North American big game in the lower 48, I think is, that's, is, is that's for bow hunting. Yep. So, yeah, I know, I, I know uh, Larry's trying to, to ask a question. We ought to let him jump in here. Hey, thanks guys. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. All right. So um, I'm pretty fortunate. I, I do work for the New Mexico department of game and fish. And um, I do have some friends that, you know, coworkers that have in the last couple of years have drawn it. And um, I know, I know three guys that have drawn it in the last four years and killed good goats. Uh, so I'm, I'm one of those guys that now I'm thinking I'm, I'm salty enough to, to get on the rock. <laughs> um, but BJ, I have a question for you and, and I know this is probably going to be a bit uncomfortable. The reason I ask is I used to be asked by it and, and I don't get this question much anymore and I never really knew how to answer it, but this doesn't have, it's not particularly for just bow hunting on the rock, but there's the over the counter Ibex hunt. And um, I have a picture 
where they had roped, <laughs> they roped a billy over by Las Cruces. And mm-hmm. Eric Grominger, our bighorn sheep biologist, is a really, really close friend of mine. He's the one that shared the picture with me, and it's it's a legit picture. It's not photoshopped. So I know that the, the goats have come off the rock. Uh, so, BJ, I know you live there, and I know you spend, like you said, just an unhealthy amount of time out there. What are the numbers like down below? And this is this is for my own personal. I'm not asking to, to share with, with the public. The numbers of goats that have moved off the rock towards that, I don't know, remember if it's called the dosed monos or thresed monos. Is that a legit hunt? Is there a legit possibility of being able to hunt some goats out there? Yeah, good question. So legit hunt, absolutely, right? Any hunt's a legit hunt, I guess, if you're out there. Uh, I have tried that hunt a bunch of times. Years back, I saw less than a handful out there. Um, Have spent a lot of time out there putting glass on that mountain, and I'm not seeing them anymore. So quite possibly maybe they could venture off, but I don't see them anymore. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I just I don't see them anymore. And I heard about that picture years back, but I've never seen it. Um, I don't know what I heard. It was fake. I heard it was true. I don't know. But um, I'd hate to be on the other end of that rope. I would tell you that. I can I can share it with you. Yeah, no, yeah, you may do that later. But um, no, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's maybe worth a gander, but I don't know. It's I'm not seeing them anymore. I'd be hunting them every day. I promise you. Thank you. Yep. Hey, I got a question. Um, this is for both, uh, both of you guys, but, um, you know, we see a lot of people, I live here in Deming also, and I see a lot of people that show up for this hunt and, uh, typically will hunt one, maybe two days and they're gone. And part of the reason is because they're not in good physical shape and a lot of them blow out their feet. So tell me about footwear. What are, you, what are you all thinking? I'm not looking for brands, but I'm looking for the importance of, you know, having good footwear and getting them broke in and, and of course, that physical fitness part. Yeah, good question. Um, they, yeah, I see that all the time. You see people spend a lot of money, you know, on a tag. I don't know what it is, out of state, or, but that's where you usually see it is out of state. They come and they'll spend literally one or two days on the mountain and they are they're tucking tail and they're leaving because um, their feet are just in shambles. And I, I see a lot of people coming up with snake chaps and snake boots that are not broken and they just can't. I think a high quality boot, the most expensive boot that you can afford is probably your best bet and get that sucker broken months before the hunt. Um, again, not to, you know, not to put names of brands or anything out there, but what do you think, Trevin? You know, I, I think people make the first mistake is they get on a website um, and they say, I wear a size eight. And they yeah. order, I mean, uh, of course, you can tell how small my feet are. Um, and they order in the eights, okay? Um, you, first thing you need to do is go to a, uh, a, a shoe store, like a Dillard's or someplace that has one of those Brannock. Measure your left foot and your right foot, okay? And I bet you six ways a Sunday that your feet aren't the same size. Okay, that's the first thing. Then the second thing is get the right width. And I'm not going to drop names, um, 
uh, as far as what I mean, I can tell you what I've worn in the past. I've worn Loas and they, they were too wide. I have a narrow foot and I was actually uh, used to work for a company called Eastman's hunting journal. And I was filming a gentleman named Cameron Haynes and um, I tore on a seven day backcountry hunt uh, um, that turned into a nine day backcountry hunt, but that's another story. Um, I tore my feet up. Uh, Kenetrex. Um, I've worn Kenetrex. I really liked Kenetrex because they made a narrow boot. Once I got the sizing down, understand the way they make boots. Boots are made on forms and a lot of them are made in Europe. Okay. So when you get a good hiking boot, it's usually a, a Italian, Spanish, or German. Okay. Are some of the high ends. And yeah, you're going to spend 250 to 400. Okay. But understand if you take care of your boots, it's, they'll handle the rock. Okay. If you take care of your boots. Now, BJ, a guy who spends so much time on the rock and Derek Harris, another buddy of mine, they, they spend so much time. They're going to wear a boot out much quicker because that rock is, is so rough. But I, I didn't wear my boots out in, in my hunts. You know, I still wore them after that and they worked fine. Um, but make sure you get the right width, make sure you get the ankle support that you need. And then the, the third thing is, and I know it's, it probably should be toward the front, but you have those boots have to be broken in, but in order for them to break in, you need to make sure you're getting the right sizes. Okay. I actually ordered a pair of boots in one time and it was this, you know, I, I did the old, well, I wear, I know what I wear. I wear this and they came in. Turns out they ran about a half size too, uh, too big. So I ended up getting like a, a half size smaller. They happen to offer it sometimes on those bigger sizes. They don't like 11s and 12s. It's either an 11 or a 12. Um, so I, I think you have to go with something that I like the boot that has a rand around it. And so mm -hmm. what, what that is, is it's, it's a rubber piece that comes up. What that's going to do is a lot of people think it's going to help you for uh, waterproofing. It has nothing to do with waterproofing. It's more about um, being able to protect that boot. Um, some people like a stiff boot. I did not for the, for the rock. I did not like a stiff boot. Um, I, I wanted a boot that was medium. Um, I didn't use a boot like I would use when I was antelope hunting, but you know, that's almost tennis shoe, like, like a Solomon or something like that. I liked a, that middle ground. Um, and I ended up, I think I hunted with a Mindel, um, boot that, that did really well for me. So I think I could tell you, uh, you need to go get this boot and then you go try it on and it doesn't work for you. So I don't want to do that. What you're going to have to do is, is like BJ said, is you're, you're just going to have to put your foot in them and walking around the store will tell you some stuff after you've measured your foot, but then you have to get out and you have to walk. The other thing I would say is get a liner. Um, you can get, it's almost, I hate to say this, but it's, it's thin like a, like a, uh, like a hose. Uh, but it's like knee high, get some of those. And then you get a good uh, synthetic or a alpaca or a wool sock. But if you'll get that liner and put that liner in there, that'll help with that moisture away. And then of course that wool or that alpaca or that, that synthetic will keep that moisture from your foot where you, where you really mess your feet up. And I don't care if it's Ibex hunting or elk hunting is wet feet. And, yeah. and, and on, on the rock, you took, correct me if I'm wrong, BJ, but on the rock, you're feeding and get wet from anything but your sweat. Yeah. So and, you, and on that too, I take, I wear just 
wool socks, whether they're smart wool or right. Norpins or something like that, uh, Fox Rivers. And I take multiple pairs of socks with me too, and I'll change them. I'll rest and I will change my socks out and let them dry out. And because if your feet are gone, your hunt's over, man. Yeah, yeah, that's the first thing. And and I was when you guys were talking about the uh, the abandonment rate, um, and and maybe Larry can maybe Larry's heard something because I think a game warden. Um, told me this in 2014 that I think they did some research and the uh, Ibex hunt was the number one, uh, the highest abandonment rate for people that had tags, meaning that they hunted the less. And I don't know what, yep. I think at the time it was a day and a half or two days and people, that's the, that's the amount of time that people stayed and hunted because um and I think the number one reason they can't handle it is your freaking footwear. Yeah. Well, on that steep cliffs. <laughs> well, yeah, but because of physically they can't do it. And you're right. Their feet just give yeah. up. I, yeah. They just can't handle it. I've seen them come off that mountain and they take off their boots and toenails are gone. I mean, just, it's a bad deal. And buying their boots too small is a big problem. Um, your feet swell at the end of the day. I'd rather have a pair of boots a half size too big and have to wear a thicker sock or put an insole in or something like that to have my boots too small. Because those quality boots like that, they, they don't stretch. They're not like a cowboy boot or something that'll stretch a little bit. They're, they're pretty much a one size deal. Yeah, Larry just confirmed that it's still true that the Harvest Report data supports that, that it's the, it's the highest abandoned hunt. Um, yeah. The other thing I would tell you is, um, is you need something, and this is small, but yet very large. Um, you've got to have a way to continually drink water throughout the whole day. And whether that be a camelback where you can just grab a straw and suck on it, or you take the time and sit down and you down the water, I guarantee you the cramps that you will have in your calves and in your, in your, your hamstrings, even with the amount of water I was pounding and I was even uh, supplementing that with some electrolytes, I would wake up in the middle of the night and my hamstring would be freaking in a ball. Um, number one, I'm old um, <laughs> or, or older than I think I am. And, um, and number two, it's just, you can't, there, there, you just got, you got to stay hydrated and you know, it could be 20 degrees on that mountain or it could be 80 degrees. And I'm talking about the January hunt. So, so you've all in one day. Yeah, all exactly. So you've got, and, and even when it's cold and that's where I screwed up is, you know, it was a kind of an overcast, kind of a cool day and I didn't drink enough water. So that's another thing that I'm going to throw out there is, is, um, you know, you're gonna, you got to stay hydrated. Yeah, that's a good point. This, this, the Ibex hunt on the Floridas is one of the most mental games you can play um when it comes to hunting um and here's why i've been on hunts where i couldn't find animals but you can always go and relocate and find animals that's not going to be your problem on the uh, on the florida mountains the problem is going to be keeping your mental uh focus again back to that groundhog day and doing the same thing every day because all you need is that one opportunity and to capitalize that on that one opportunity but if you allow them, you will talk yourself off that mountain if you let yourself. So you just have to go in there with, look, every day, I'm one day closer to killing an Ibex. 
And, and BJ, I mean, that last day you saw how down I was because I knew it was my last hurrah. And, and, you know, sometimes you need a guy like BJ to go, no, you, 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 you can make it. You just got to do it. And I just dug deep and, and, you know, I was really fortunate to have the guys around me, um, you know, including Tanner and, and some of the other guys that were there um, to be able to say my dad was on the floor uh, with BJ there, you know, glassing up. And, and, and then when it all came together, I'm, I'm telling you what, there's a picture on my profile of, I think BJ, maybe you even took it where I'm standing there. There's this tiny little Billy on this goat, uh, on this rock. And I'm standing there with my bow up. Not, not like, look at me, look at me, but like, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe 30 days and I made it happen. But the only way I did it was because in my mind, I was not going to quit. So. And it was to the end. I mean, you, you hunted, you hunted full 30 days. That goat, that goat was killed last evening. Yeah. I mean, so you've got to be strong through the, through the, through the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. Any more questions? I know there's a bunch of questions coming in. Can we get those, Jesse? Or? There's some good uh, suggestions cool. of boots I see on the chat too. So guys, you can take a look at some of those brands too, Crispy. Uh, there's some there's some good boots out there. So yeah. So what I'll do, uh, and again, people can. Everybody has the ability to unmute themselves at this point. So if anyone wants to take the opportune time to ask a question themselves, they can certainly do that. But here's a question that. Um, JP asked, and uh, on the chat, it's O-R-L-B-X-W. I don't know what that means, but uh, JP, novice bow hunter, picked up this activity in the last couple months, so excuse the novice nature of the question here. Uh, but, but John Pierce asks, how much time do Ibex spend on the rocks compared to vegetation slash food areas? Also, how often do they water? Mm. They don't water. <laughs> They get all so, their water from vegetation. Yeah, they, they Game of Fish put in these waters, BLM, I don't know who put the waters in. They're like these up, big upside-down umbrellas. They put them in when the Ibex were originally put on the mountain, um, but they don't work anymore. They're, they don't hold water. I have witnessed Ibex lick, lick water off the seeps, you know, when, it, when the you know, springs are running off the sides of the cliffs. But they don't – I have never witnessed them come to a water – they, you just see them eat vegetation. They're just, they get enough out of it, out of the vegetation. And what was the second part of that question? How much time do they spend on the... On the rocks compared to, say, in an area that's vegetated where they might be uh, feeding? I think that varies. It varies of the area and varies of the pressure, varies on... That's, that's a lot of varies. Because I'll see them and they'll never leave the cliffs. And literally, they are on the cliffs. I mean, they are 90... De I mean, yeah, 90 degrees and they are... They are on the cliffs walking like, yeah, like they have, like he said, what is, what did you say, Trevin, on your deal there, that they have fly, fly paper or something or? Yeah, on their hooves. On their hooves. I, it's I crazy because they. I have a table on the back of my truck. I have video <laughs> of them um, under the, the big oh, eye, uh, the eye of the needle on the main mountain. Um, I have video of them going around the base of it, there's nothing to go around on. It wasn't like they were on a little trail and they're going, they're literally just on. I mean, it couldn't have been more than three inches. And there's eight of them running around the face of that 
dead gum. I mean, I can't, I tell people, man, you, you can't understand how they move through country. And, um, you know, I mean, they're getting up on these domes. And if you walked around that dome, you're like, I have no idea how they get up there. And they just do. Yeah. So like BJ says, I've seen goats stay in the cliffs all day and they're feeding on whatever's there whether it be cactus, whether it be choya, whether it be, I mean, they're just amazing, amazing animals. I have, they're, they're, they're amazing. Yeah, and there's no time. It's not like in the morning, oh, they're going to be, you know, down the, in the saddles feeding under the, it's, it, there's no rhyme or reason. Right. They are where there are. Mm -hmm. So this is a question from Katie that I, that I really appreciate because this um, is something that I struggled with. I got myself convinced and I'm going to change the way I pursue these Ibex if I ever draw a tag. But the question is, um, again, from Katie, I don't know if I can hang for multiple days in a row hiking all the way up and down. I realize having a spotter and coming up from the bottom can be an advantage, but with a higher number of animals and hunters on the mountain, is sleeping on top and taking advantage of Ibex being pushed a viable option? Well, that's a great question. Um, and that was my thinking in 2014, exactly the same thing. The problem that came with that is that the Ibex knew I was there. Okay. Um, and where I thought I was saving myself the trip up and down every day, which in 2016, I did the opposite. I stayed on the bottom and I picked and chose my battles, if that makes sense. Kind of like BJ said before, there's times just because you see Ibex there doesn't mean you go run at them. You have to pick your battles. Okay. And, um, by staying up on the mountain, you completely take your, your spotters on the ground out of the equation. And if you're going to do that, then your best bet is to already have your ambush place picked out and you have to commit to stay there. So let's say you're, let's say you're, you got a, a tent or a bivy or whatever, and you're on a, a ridge over here and there's a great saddle. You've seen Ibex move back through. Then, you know, before light, you, you work your way over there, you set up and you stay. Um, but if you are going to be in there and you're going to try and spot and stalk by yourself, then you're in a position kind of like what BJ's talked about where he, he actually likes to do that. Um, but you don't have any help from anybody else. You don't have those spotters, unless your spotter's with you. Maybe you take somebody with you and they stay with you and then they can become a spotter. But the, the, the advantage of having that desert floor crew down there is because there's times they lose sight of those Ibex and they'll move around. They'll get in the truck or, I mean, there's enough roads down at the base or they'll, and then they'll pull out and come all the way back around and pick those Ibex up again and they can tell you where you need to go in order to get a position. Um, it's all about percentages. Bow hunting in general is a percentage game, but on the rock, it's even more. You need the most percentage. You need the most opportunities and the highest percentage. So pick your battles. I don't know if I answered your question very good. BJ, you got anything to add on that? Yeah, no, I mean, it, you kind of, I think we, you answered it, but just as a perspective, yeah, there's days that I'll, that I'll hunt and I'd never get out of the, I never make a stock because there's just not, it's not right. worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I, you know, I kind of left with them, I guess, not to poke fun, but you'll see these guys that are overzealous, you know, first few days they're out and they see some goats and they're gone. 
And I'll sit there and I'll watch them. And I'm like, they're not going to make it 30 minutes. And sure enough, the goats are gone. And, you know, you just pick your battles, be patient. And, yeah, I don't know. If you want to go up on top, I think it's a cool opportunity and a cool way to see some some place, places. But you just have to live in the cliffs. And they'll come around. I mean, it's – I don't know. You have to – like he said, you need to be committed to some areas. You know, and just because you're on top doesn't mean it's easier. Just skirting across the top of that mountain is insane. That is, yeah. it is so treacherous. It's and a lot of times you're marooned. You get up onto this little point, and you're marooned there. Right. Um, I I, I, think, I don't know. I don't. I think I think it's just I, what you want to do. I found out being in there, being back in there, that there was times where I. I actually walked more than had I been on the outside walking up and down because I'd get back in there and I'd see goats. Well, now I have to drop off this point that I'm on all the way to the bottom and back up the other side. So I didn't really save myself any walking. Um, because once you get it, you, I mean, the rock doesn't just go up and then it's flat on top. I mean, now you've got draws and big canyons and, you know, I mean, especially on the south side if you go on the south side that you can actually come in at the back the, the south side and come up and you can walk up the bottom you're at the same elevation as you would be on the outside in the desert but you know you can come around on that trail you can walk back in there but in order to get to any goats you still got to go straight up so if you're on one side of that and the goats are on the other you still have to go down and back up um so i mean i i, I just think um being able to pick an ambush spot is good, but I, I think it's, it's, you need to be able to move. You need to be able to move. It's not bad though. The first three or four days of the season, because as we spoke of earlier, I think Ray brought it up that, that after three days, four days, all of a sudden it's like the party You're by yourself. Everybody <laughs> went home. Yeah. So all of a sudden, all the people that were moving goats aren't moving goats anymore. And, and now you got to go to a different strategy. So maybe the first couple of days, maybe you try that. And then depending upon what you see and the opportunities you have, maybe then you'd be ready to pull back out and go back and, and, and move around the base a little bit. I don't know. So here's another question that I think is relevant to uh, any style of hunting that you're going to do in the Floridas. And it's relating to wind. And there's a number of questions here about wind, so we'll just lump them into one question. But I've been on the top gym peak before where I was pretty convinced the wind was just going to pick me up and launch me off the mountain. I mean, I was like holding on for dear life with, with the way the winds are blowing up there. But those winds are also swirling and moving around. So you would, um, would you guys like to comment a little bit on how you deal with the wind on top of that rock? Because anyone that's been up there knows how that can be. In reference to what? In reference, in to, reference to just dealing with it or, or animals smelling you? Animals smelling you. The, the question's in the chat box. Now, I, I probably uh, got sidetracked by talking about getting blown off, but the questions in the chat box relate primarily to how you deal with the wind as it relates to trying to get within archery range of an ibex. I don't, I don't think it I, – I don't know. I don't, deal, I don't even take it into the, my equation. Um, if I see some goats that are in a, in a place – I don't really pay the wind much, much mind. I've been two of the goats I killed were directly downwind of me. They never act like they smelled me. I don't know if maybe the wind was blowing to them and there was another crosswind because there's so many wind crosswind deals up there. I, I don't know. I, I don't take it into equation. 
as far as safety goes, yeah, you better take it into equation. And as far as shooting goes, but be prepared for that. But as far as them smelling me, I don't, I don't think it matters in my opinion. What do you think, Trevin? Um, I would, uh, from my experience, I would say that that is true. When I, I started out, I think, um, being a hunter that hunts a lot of mule deer and antelope and elk. And so wind is very, yeah, I, I even hunt whitetail and, uh, you know, it's wind is king. And when I got up there, you, you can't, it can't be king or else you won't hunt because yeah. it changes. The topography of that mountain is so unique. And, uh, you know, you've got these eddies that will, the wind just, you know, you've got a great strong wind, you come over the edge and all of a sudden the thermals hit and now you've got this swirling wind. So there's a point where um, you do the best you can and, you know, uh, I, get a, I get a kick out of a lot of guys that come from back east that have hunted whitetail, and they're like, well, I need to stay scent free. I'm going to spray down. I'm like, dude, <laughs> the first one-eighth of that mountain you go up, you're going to smell like one of those freaking billies anyway. Because, I mean, you, you just – you can't help but perspire, and you can't help but, you know, you're human, and you're put, expending a lot of energy. So, you know, you do the best you can. But I, I would agree with BJ. I mean – uh, you're going to be much, it's going to be much more of a situation where you're putting yourself in a position uh, to be where they want to go. And by the time they smell you, hopefully you've already gotten to full draw and, or, or, you know, uh, laid down and got a good steady rest with your rifle, whatever it might be. And, and, and got, got a good shot off. Oh, that's um, great insight right there, because that's something that I challenge that I, I always struggle with. When I was on the mountain, here's another great question from Katie. Um, you know, ibex obviously any ibex with a bow and arrow, any ibex period, I think is a is a tremendous accomplishment for any hunter. But Katie writes that she's got a female immature tag, and one of the things she's interested in um, is behavioral differences between young billies and old billies. And uh, also, she'd like to have any tips that you're aware of to make sure that um, that, that if she's shooting at a billy, that it's a legal billy. Um, you know, obviously in the, on the female immature tag, there's a horn length restriction to ensure that the animal is legal. Do you have any tips on how to determine the legality of a billy based on both their behavioral differences or, or the um, just field judging? So in my, in my deal, if it was me, I would not be even cons Unless the billy was super, super small, I wouldn't even want to mess with a billy because my luck, that billy would be 15 and a half inches long and the game warden be waiting down at the bottom and rightfully so. I mean, you know, I, I, they do, you know, they're doing their job, but if, if that, if you have a question that that billy's close, I wouldn't pull the trigger. Um, it's just not worth it. Um, behavioral differences. I don't know. They're all, they're all weary and crazy. And <laughs> I don't know. I, I think they're all act about the same. Um, the nannies seem to be a little bit more leery, weary. They're watching out more. The billies are kind of reliant on them a little more, but when they're in their own bachelor groups, man, they're just as cagey. So I don't know. But yeah, if, if you have a question of the length, I wouldn't pull the trigger because yeah. the difference of 14 inches and 16 inches is, you know, you can't measure that through a pair of optics. I don't yeah. care how close you are. Yeah. I would agree with that. Here's a question from Ben. Um, 
Another great question. Ben asks, are there too many hunters up there at one time? Are your stocks commonly disturbed by other hunters? Um, I, I can, I can answer m only my experience and my experience is nine times out of 10. When I meet a hunter, we actually work together on a stock. Okay. Um, it's not hard to see hu other hunters. Every once in a while you get in a situation where you're going or doing something and then one pops up, you know, and you didn't realize they were coming up from the other side. That happens. But most of the people I've met on there are great. Now, I will say this. I was coming down on, uh, I think it was my sixth day in, in the 2016 hunt. I was coming down. I was 100 yards from four billies that were bedded down, and I was just trying to work my way down and see what they were going to do. And an outfitter, which I will not mention their name, but I don't think they uh, – I don't know if they are supposed to be outfitting there, but an outfitter literally – saw where the billies were and he had a hunter down the ridge i guess i heard this later he ran up the hill and spooked the, the goats and i got it all on film and i thought about sending a nice little edited copy to the uh, game and fish department uh, i didn't do it because um i had i had my reasons um but most of the time the people that are moving the goats around can actually work it to your advantage. Um, and that's that situation where, okay, you you see a hunter moving up a ridge line. You see there's goats here. Most likely those goats aren't going to go toward that hunter. So if you can use them as a, a just their natural movement, they might not even see those goats. But if you can look and see the topography and you'll learn how these goats move through the, 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 the country, they, they will take the path of least resistance. Sometimes that's over a cliff. But a lot of times, if you can just get around and then you just wait and let, let the pressure, the natural pressure of those other hunters can sometimes work in your advantage. BJ? Well said, man. No, that was yeah. perfect. I, I don't think there's too many hunters. Uh, yeah, first day there might be, but like you said, there's, it doesn't last long. And there's times I don't, I don't even maybe get out of the truck or out of the razor, or, you know, uh, the first couple of days, just kind of drive around, see where people are at and wait. And uh, it clears out pretty quick. Yeah. I don't think there's too many people. Yeah. So uh, Ray Trejo asks a question regarding the, the Dolomite mine pr proposal. Um, I'm not an expert on this particular mine proposal. Ray might chime in uh, and, and provide some insight as to what he knows about this. What I do know is that a mining company currently has a proposal to um, work on constructing what I would uh, describe as, as a, a very environmentally impactful mine in the Florida mountains. Do either of you, uh, Trevin or BJ, have any familiarity with that proposal, with that mine? And if so, what are your thoughts on how that might affect uh, Ibex hunting in the region? I'm going to pull these, these AirPods out just a minute, okay? Um, and while he's doing that, I'll, I'll tell you what I know. I know that there was a couple years ago, there was a big hubbub about this. And I, it was kind of squashed or they pulled out or something. I don't know. I do know this. I don't live there. I don't, it's not in my backyard anymore. 
And if there's any question that it would negatively impact the, uh, the, the, the actual community, it would ne negatively impact the environment or negative, negatively impact the ecosystem and the animals that live there, then I'm against it. Um, again, I don't know the details. That's just kind of my stance. And that's me up here in Colorado putting in my two cents. Um, but I don't see how building a bunch of roads and infrastructure that would need to support a, a, a mine would help that ecosystem. Now, with that being said, the oil and gas companies in some areas, I've seen how actually some of the things that they've done actually did positively affect the wildlife, um, especially dealing with water and some different things. But I don't, I don't know how it would in the Floridas, how that, how that could even possibly do that. Maybe BJ, you can speak a little more directly to that. Yeah. I think in some instances, yeah, there could be a positive, you know, effect to that. But here in the Florida mountains, I, I, I cannot imagine that it would, there's any positive to it at all besides destruction and, and, you know, just ultimate destruction of that, of that mountain. Um, these, the animals that, that reside there, that's, that's their home. They don't really have anywhere else to go. And if we start monkeying with that, I mean, we lose a whole lot of, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty heart, heartbreaking to even think that they would, they would do that. So I don't know. D does, does anybody have any other insight on that? Any. Ray, do you, Ray, do you know where they're at on that proposal? I got you, Ray. Go ahead. Yeah, man. Um, so, you know, Ben, Ben's also been working on this as well, but, um, you know, they're, they're um, hot and fast and trying to get um, this proposal uh, passed uh, through BLM. Um, and there's just a lot of environmental impact studies that have not been uh, met. Uh, one of the things that is a big concern living in the desert, like you know, in Deming, um, you know, they're looking at upwards of uh, 34,000 gallons of water that they're going to use out of our members basin for this project. And um, I think both you, Trayvon and BJ know how many open pit mines that we have in the Florida mountains that are scary. I mean, that, you know, BJ mentioned walking off that mountain in the dark. I think he and I have both done that. And um, there, there's some of those open pit mines that are still literally open that you could drive a truck off into and never see that rascal again. So those are the, some of the things that we're concerned with. Um, the water on the surface, you know that we have a migration of sandhill cranes that come through, um, and you know what what are the effects it's going to have on those sandhills? Um, the ibex, of course, are going to be blasting. There's going to be a lot of road traffic. Uh, the mule deer. I know that you guys spend most of your time on the mountain, but I know that on your way to the mountain, you've seen the big, huge mule deer that we have there. And I think Trayvon, you mentioned quail. Yeah. 
you know, I'm a big bird hunter, and I can tell you that Deming for many, many, many years, um, it was the quail capital of New Mexico, and the Florida mountains was a hot spot, and still is to a certain extent. So um, those are some of the concerns we have. Thank you, Ray. Anybody else um, have any comments or thoughts on the Dolomite mine proposal? All right, moving on, then Evan um, asked a really good question, uh, and, and that is, do you all come across any mountain lions while hunting? I've seen it mentioned in a few areas. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the first pistol I ever bought was because I, I came face to face literally with some, I was stalking some Ibex and these goats were just doing the exact thing they were supposed to be doing. All of a sudden they just, bolted went up this you know couldn't figure out what they did you know grass is knee high up there walked off a little bit and line jumped up you know three four yards in front of me holy cow that was cool you know crazy I walked another couple yards another lion got up and stood there and sat there and looked at me face to face you know three four yards at me and i'm backing up and he's kind of following me and yeah you do see them i mean they're they're, they're there and i like like somebody had said that's their that's ibex's number one predator um, is goats. That, that mountain is, I, I would say, pretty infested with mountain lions. It's a common fighting. I think it's, I think it's amazing. Um, I, I'm just enamored with mountain lions and uh, just the way I, they hunt. They're amazing, and and they are part of a good plan to keep uh, the the numbers in check. Um, I never felt threatened. I saw a couple of them. Of course, I'm, you know, you're sitting there glassing as much as, as, as we did, how much time you spend behind glass. That's the other thing. Buy the best glass you can afford or buy a huge bottle of ibuprofen. Um, but what I would say is I, we saw them. It, I, was, I was more worried about rattlesnakes than I was mountain lions. I agree. I agree with you. They're there. We see them, but they're they're almost an, an awesome thing to see. And to watch them maneuver around the mountain is just it's it's a it's a treat. Excellent. Now Jeremy Romero asks a great question. Jeremy, um, I guess it was last year, year before. I happen to know spent a lot of time on that mountain climbing up and down. I think he pulled what we'll now call a going forward. We'll call it a Trevin where you uh, spend 15 days just beating yourself up on the rock. So Jeremy's question is this, what were your daily nutritional intake requirements when hiking in the mountain? And uh, BJ, not counting when you're riding around in the razor. When you're, I don't think you can, I don't think you can consume enough calories when you're hunting. I mean, it's just, yeah. I, I think that's the question, right? What do you, what do you eat? Yeah, what are your daily nutritional intake requirements when you're actively hiking and hunting on that mountain? Yeah, and, and maybe you know, I think you're probably right, BJ. You're you're going to expend more calories than you intake, but maybe you guys have some tips on on nutritional requirements to keep yourself energetic enough to continue hunting, especially over the course of a two week hunt. Red chili burritos. I was just going to say that four. <laughs> Of Yoya's uh, uh, chili alavadas, red chili alavada. Yeah, it's 
just take what you can take. I mean, it's you're not gonna, you know, something in the very calorie, you know, calorically dense. Um, I pack a lot of times bagels, the little flat bagels with peanut butter and and uh, it's like the pre-cooked bacon. I'll put that in there because it's you know, pound for pound, it's pretty dense in calories. Um, those I pack those little granola bars. A burrito, I love to have some like a burrito or something like that for lunch. Um, but intermittent jerky, some Jolly Rancher candies will, you know, really give you a little pick-me-up. I know there's some supplement companies. We're not here to promote stuff. But, I mean, there's some, some pretty big names out there that we could, you know, little stuff you can throw in your water, some electrolytes, some, you know, hydrate recovery kind of stuff, some, I don't know. Um, I, for me, I, w I found I was burning about 2,500 to 3,000 calories a day. I mean, I'm a little yeah. guy. Um, I couldn't take that much in. I think I lost 10 pounds on each hunt, um, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I just think you've got to, you kind of got to grit. You got to do like the Ibex do. You got to kind of graze all day long, just continually, you know, keeping yourself, you got to feed the machine because that's what you are. When you're on that mountain, you got to think of yourself as a machine. You got to stay hydrated. You got to stay, you know, you got to keep those calories coming in. So, um, but make sure they're not empty calories. Um, red chili's good. I mean, it'll, it'll set you free. Yeah. So uh, we've got 15 minutes left. And uh, so I, I'd really like everybody to make sure they get their questions answered. And if, if they want to chime in, I certainly welcome them to do that. In the meantime, I'd like to bring it back to the original video we started watching. Uh, Trevin, and also remind everybody that on the call, if you haven't gone to the New Mexico Wildlife Federation website, uh, Ben Neary, our conservation director, did an incredible write-up about this event, and there are links to the full-length videos, The Rock, parts one and two, uh, in that story. Um, I watched them both yesterday. I'd seen them before, um, and they're just, just really terrific videos. Trevin, I commend you for, for putting those together. Those Thank are you. really fantastic. So I encourage everybody, if, if, if you've got the time and, and interest, to, to watch those videos. I think it was like $3. I had to rent the video on Vimeo, and I think it was 3 bucks. I don't know, it was the best $3 I've, I've spent, that's for sure. So um, you can go to our website and see those videos. But going back to the video we watched at the beginning of this session, um, we saw that these ibex were imported and they're not a native species in New Mexico. And there tends to be a lot of controversy regarding non-native species in the state. Um, particularly, you hear a lot about that with Barbary sheep. And I, I think Barbary sheep tend to, their range, because of the range of habitats they comfortably exist in, their range is, is continually expanding. And that's got some people nervous. I think oryx and ibex, generally speaking, in New Mexico are much more well um, received by by the general public and native species uh, advocates, if you will. But would you guys like to comment all about the the, the uh, non-native status of this particular animal? What do you think about that and, and whether you um, are very, I think I know the answer already, but whether you're very appreciative that this non-native animal exists on the landscape and, and if so, why? So for me personally, of course, we're, we're appreciative of them. And, and I don't know, I don't know, I can't speak of what was up there, you know, in the 60s when those were, when, you know, when they were introduced. But I feel that they have filled a, a niche up there that maybe wasn't inhabited. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty treacherous area up there. And I can't imagine there being very many 
mule deer or anything else up there where they were at. So I think they have filled a pretty pretty neat little niche up there. And and they do they they they're not like the barbary sheep that they have, you know, migrated all over the place. These these stay pretty much right where they're at. So yeah, that's that's my opinion. I, I agree. Um, I think it's. Uh, if you look at uh, invasive species or species that have been brought into an area, um, you can't help but think of Australia and how Australia has been decimated by their non-native species, um, their invasive species. But yet, I'd look at Ibex, at Ibex as the perfect fit, um, uh, even more than Oryx and, Ibe and, and Barbary, um, because of the fact that there is a, there already is a check in the ecosystem. There's the perfect predator to hunt them, a mountain lion, okay? There's also, uh, what else is gonna live there? As, as BJ said, it's, it's perfect ecosystem for them to survive on. And if we do our part as hunters and maintain the numbers and the game and fish doing a good part of staying you know, the 30,000 overview uh, look at the population and the, and the health herd and, you know, fluctuate those numbers. There's plenty of people that I think would like to hunt them. The difficulty comes in the terrain. Um, it's not like a deer where if you get more people in there, more deer are going to die um, because it's such a tough hunt. So I think that there is, uh, I think it's, I think it's a success story in my opinion. Um, they're not, such an invasive species that uh, they cause havoc. Now, um, that's where, when people ask me, uh, you know, about being about conservation in general, uh, this is a great story of hunters being co conservationists, and 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 we play that part. We play it well. So that, that's that's my two cents. Well, great, great points, uh, gentlemen, and I tend to agree with you. The other, I think, uh, important thing for everybody to remember is is the license fees. BJ's mentioned a couple of times in our conversations this evening that we've had about the amount of money that people, particularly from other states, spend and, and come to New Mexico to pursue these animals. Obviously, the harvest rates are, are very, very low, but all of those license fees uh, go to support conservation in this state, go to support our Department of Game and Fish. And obviously, it's, it's most people on the call know this, but our Department of Game and Fish here in New Mexico is not funded by taxpayer dollars. We're not supported by the general fund. Department of Game and Fish requires these license fee dollars and the federal match from Edmund Robertson and Dingle Johnson and things like that to support conservation and wildlife management in this state. And I think IBEX uh, really, really fit well into that model. So thank you both for, for those comments. Um, Ray Trejo just kind of pinged me to ask another question that uh, I'm actually surprised hasn't come up yet. So I'm glad you brought this up, Ray. And that question is how IBEX takes, uh, let's talk about food quality a little bit. Here we go. Can you guys see this? <laughs> that's, that's, that's thanks to Trevin right there. Thank you, Trevin, for that shirt. In my opinion, they are wonderful eating. And I think a lot of it is, I think people will say they, they didn't taste good or they, you know, the meat was no good. I think that's maybe on their own. 
not to throw stones, if the meat is taken care of in the field, get it home, take care of it, and cooked properly, it's a wonderful tasting meat. So yeah, that's my I, consent on that one. I would agree. I would agree. Now, I was very fortunate when it comes to my palate and the fact that I shot a young Billy, so I'm sure that helps. Um, it was amazing. That The first time I actually ever ate Ibex was some of BJ's. Um, that he'd given to, to my brother-in-law and my sister. And um, I had some, it was phenomenal. And that and, was off of a, that was off of a 46 inch billing or 44 yeah. and a 46 inch billing. So that was a very mature billing. Right. Yeah. But my, uh, the goat that I, it's funny cause I'm, I'm that guy that invites people over. My, my wife is an administrator in the school system here. So we have a lot of people that come over um, and we sit and we make tacos or we, you know, and it's always wild game. We, we 95, 98% of the protein we eat is wild game. And, um, I think I made, I don't remember what I made, but I made something out of Ibex and, um, we ate. And of course, and I said, well, what do you think of it? And they didn't even know, they didn't even know. And, and the crazy thing was when I told them what it was, I had to go and I had to actually pull up pictures of what the animal looked like. Cause they didn't recognize, of course, you know, Ibex, what's an Ibex. Um, but I, I found it to be, I found it to be good. I, I I'll tell you what, I like it a lot more than bear. I like it a lot more than bear. So, but yeah, yeah no, good. That's, uh, that's excellent guys. So, uh, We've got about nine more minutes, any, you know, and I don't want to be the one asking all the questions. I want to make sure that the people that took the time out of their evening to participate um, get all their questions answered. So is there anybody else here in the meeting that would like to, again, you can unmute yourself or you can type in the chat box. Is there anybody on here that would like to ask a couple concluding questions to these um, incredibly skilled Ibex hunters? I don't think it's been mentioned on the call, and BJ Trejo is a very, very humble um, but uh, as people prepare their questions, BJ, do you want to just mention how many Ibex you've killed in New Mexico with a bow and arrow? I don't think we've actually said the number yet. Yeah, it's, it's, I've killed six. <laughs> yeah, so that um, is the unofficial record uh, in New Mexico. I, I don't know of anybody, and this is just from personal research and talking to folks. I'm not aware of any other person in the world who's killed six Ibex in New Mexico with a bow and arrow. So um, congratulations, BJ. So for all of those listening here, uh, someone's trying to ask that couldn't unmute. So hopefully they can unmute now. But um, if, if you want to talk to the world record archery Ibex holder, at least as far as quantity goes, now's your chance. Nobody was, nobody else. Go ahead. Uh, John, can you unmute now? Hey, Trevin, can you unmute? Oh, there we go. Did you fix that? Yeah. Should I, be good now, John. Yeah. You know, I've only been down there a couple times, but I found it pretty tough to get around that mountain. Um, it, it was so slow with a vehicle. So going down there, you probably need to use a ATV or uh you know, razor or something to that nature. Can you drive all the way around that mountain on the south side, from east side to the west side, going through the south? You can, but like you mentioned, it's pretty treacherous. It's 
not recommendable, that's for sure. So when you're when you're hunting it, do you tend to stay in one on one side of it for the for the whole day duration, or you know, looking for them, or trying to get your opportunities? And and how often would you switch to one side of the mountain to the other because they're moving all the time? So is it better to stay like on the east side and just keep watching that side until until you get your opportunities? I, you know, I move around a lot, but I don't, I don't go around the whole mountain. Um, it's too far to go all the way around in one day. I usually will just hunt and, you know, I gotta have my favorite spots just like everywhere else or anybody, every, you know, any other place you have your little favorite areas. And I kind of stay to them within a, you know, X amount of range and just go back and forth through there. And, you know, they're moving around, but it's, it's different goats moving around. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, and, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah. I, I, I don't I don't take I don't make a lot of miles. I just move around a lot. Yeah, I uh we had a suburban. Um and uh again, we didn't ever try and get all the way around the mountain, but like if we were gonna go to the south and, and spend some time there, um we would take better roads until we could come in from the other side. And then we had what we had was our favorite glassing points. You know, mm-hmm. I knew from this spot, if I parked the truck here and got, we got out, take a comfortable chair and a good tripod, and then we'd sit there, we'd use the, the vehicle and that would be our shade. Right. And then we'd kind of sit there and we'd glass for hours. Okay. And, um, and then once we'd find one or, or a group or whatever, then we'd have to, okay, how would we get to them? And that, that dictated everything. There was times we left goats on the cliffs, but there was no way we could get to them because of where they were going. And we'd go look at another spot. And then if that didn't work out, sometimes we'd come back and oh, now they've moved into a position we can make a play on them. Yep. Um, I mean, you just kind of almost have to be, you have to be mobile and you have to be fluid and you have to be able to change. So I don't know if Larry's still on the call. Uh, he might be, and if he is, he might be able to answer this question. But um, the Gunner's iPad is asking what the estimated population is. Do we have an idea, maybe a best guess or any numbers from Department of Fish and Game and of how many Ibex are actually down there? I have heard uh, 500 and I've heard 700, but I don't know which one it's closer to or if I'm even in the ballpark, but that's what numbers I've heard. None official numbers. That's just from what I've in, you know, hearing different people talk. I've, I've heard about the same and I would, and I would venture to say that's pretty close. So, so I know that before they really started pushing for the immature hunts, um, the numbers had climbed above 800 and wow. they knew that the, the department knew that there would still be a lot of unsuccessful hunters, but they did get those numbers down to which they, the department felt as far as the scientific approach was that the mountain could feasibly uh, and healthy be able to hold these numbers. And they did get that number, what they felt was below 600. So I don't know the last time they flew it. Um, they do survey the mountain, but I don't, I, I'm not aware of the last time that it was flown or what the survey numbers were. I know uh, from last year that the numbers that they felt were down below 600 or around that 600 area, and they felt that that was still a health. They, they still felt that that was even too many. 
that the that the mountain could actually go for some more reduced numbers, but I don't know. You know, I don't want to I don't want to make a statement from the department's stance that 600 is still unhealthy. I just had heard that they believed that they were below 600 and and they felt that they could still take some more out of there and still keep a healthy. They they the health of the of the goats is what has to be uh, be remembered. Not just a healthy amount to hunt, but it has to be. Can the mountain sustain a healthy herd number? And I think that's where the whole idea of those immature hunts and stuff were. But guys, I don't want to. I don't want to make a, a statement on what the department uh, numbers are because I just don't know. Yeah, I I think you're. I think that's it's interesting that they had gotten up that high, and I I'm glad they started these immature hunts. I think it's a a great way to keep the the population in check, and let's be honest, it's also a great way to get people. Uh, uh, to introduce people to this amazing conservation effort, you know, um, because I think it is a story that New Mexico can be proud of. Um, so, but that's interesting. Uh, Andy asks, Hey, do you guys ever hunt the a dragon Ridge? And you, it's funny, Andy, cause I have hunted it one time. And the only reason I even hunted it was cause I was just happened to look up there and I saw some goats and I thought, oh, man, that's awesome. I'm going to be able to get up there. Yeah, that didn't work out so good. <laughs> but uh, I didn't spend much time on there. I don't know if BJ did or has, but um, I didn't have any luck. Uh, I did climb a lot, and it's pretty. It, it's a pretty cool outcrop of rocks. But, uh, it, yeah. I've hunted it. I've killed one goat off of that mountain, off of that ridge. But, um yeah, it's, it's steep. That's a steep, nasty mountain. It's little, but it is nasty. So, yeah, there's goats there, but that does get hit pretty pretty hard because I think it's a very well-known place, and it's easy to get to. Easy to drive to, not easy to get up to. <laughs> thank, thank you, Trevor, and thank you, BJ. Anything else you guys want to add before we sign off? No, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, guys, it was great, and thanks so much for – for uh doing what you're doing well there you have it folks i hope you enjoyed it new mexico ibex um it's hard to believe bj's killed six of those suckers i mean he is the the ibex king uh, as far as i'm concerned i hope you enjoyed it again i want to encourage you visit new mexico wildlife federation um, if you want to see this whole broadcast uh, in its entirety on YouTube, you can go to the New Mexico Wildlife Federation YouTube page and check them out on the website. It's free to join. Um, and if you are uh, if you hunt in New Mexico, it's something that uh, it'd be a good thing to do. As always, I want to encourage you to go and seek out that wild place that inspires, fulfills your heart, and embrace it. God bless, and we'll see you down the trail.